We're so interested in brain sciences on The Evolving Leader because we believe a more committed form of leadership depends on understanding how we make sense of the world. As nice Nin said, we see the world as we are. In this show, our guest has inspired Scott and me in recent years with his insightful writing about how our intelligence can stand in the way of understanding the world, and recently how our predicting brains generate a range of powerful belief effects that influence our health, decision-making and relationships. If you haven't come across David Robson's work, you're in for a great primer. Hey folks, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, John? I'm feeling really uh, restored after a great weekend. Uh, lots of exercise, uh, being outdoors and uh, spending time with the family. So I'm feeling uh, really excited about our conversation with, with David, our guest today. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling full. I um, And I mean literally full. I, we just came off of Thanksgiving weekend in the U.S. Oh. and I've been eating leftovers. I did the opposite of exercising, I, except for my jaw. I exercised my jaw by eating so much. But uh, I did remember to set my scale 10 pounds back, so I'm the same weight as I was when we, uh, when we started. So, And I'm also particularly excited. I know you and I have been talking about our uh, anticipation for this one uh, for a number of weeks because we're both super big fans of his writing and his work and his research. Um, so today we are joined by the award-winning science writer, David Robson, who wants to understand the human brain, body, and behavior in their extremes. He's a Cambridge University mathematic graduate who's worked as a features editor at The New Scientist and at BBC Future. His award-winning writing appears in a wide range of publications, and he's written two of our favorite books that I just mentioned, The Intelligence Trap and The Expectation Effect. David, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Welcome, David. How are you feeling today? Uh, pretty good, thank you. Yeah, pretty tired because um, it feels like party season's already kicked off um, in the run-up to Christmas. So, yeah, I've been quite busy mm-hmm. socially. Um, so, we'll see how much stamina I have for the next few <laughs> weeks. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, in addition to uh, the intro I just gave, perhaps... Um, you know, with, with so much fascinating ground that you've covered, and we're going to try to get into as much of it as possible. Because there's so much depth there, it's hard to know where to start this conversation. So perhaps you can just imagine we're at a dinner party, and I ask you to introduce yourself and what gets you excited about your work. Okay, cool. So um, right from when I was a very little child, I was just fascinated by the brain and how it works and what we can do to kind of increase our potential and to improve our well-being. Um, just seems that we have so many skills and tools now at our disposal that we know from experimental psychology that we can use to really enhance our experience of the world and to understand, understand ourselves better. And that's really what excites me every day is to mm. be researching this, looking through the academic literature to find those kind of techniques that we can use and then to convey them to a wider audience. So your work spans many different scientific disciplines, including neuroscience and psychology. How do you, in your mind, bring those two things together to understand how humans operate? What's your framework for this? Mm, Yeah, I mean, I feel like the psychology actually comes first for me. Um, Because I really think we, first of all, before we understand kind of what's going on in the brain at the level of the kind of neurons and the connectivity between different regions we really just want to kind of see you know what are people doing and what are they saying that they're doing and do the two uh kind of uh collide you know do they overlap or are they at odds with one another um and then try to see how you can shift maybe you know what people's thinking processes to change their behavior and then finally to observe what's happening in the brain and sometimes even what's happening in other parts of their body um because we know that there is this powerful mind-body connection. Um, so that, yeah, really is the kind of pathway that I normally tread, I think, when looking at all of these issues, is to start with behaviour, investigate how we can change um, the way people are thinking, what benefits that can bring, and then looking at the mechanisms behind that. Mm-hmm. 
So let's turn to your first book, um, The Intelligence Trap. I had seen some of your um, writing in The New Scientist before then, but that book, I, I took on a summer holiday the, the time it was, part, uh, it was published, and I read it from cover to cover in, I think, about three days. It was so gripping. Um, before we dive into some of the insights, can you lay out the pitch for us? Uh, yeah, I mean, so the... You know, actually, the uh, idea for the intelligence trap really came when I was at New Scientist, and I was, um, you know, very aware of all of these kind of Nobel Prize-winning scientists. You know, people who are really changing our understanding of like the universe and the brain and the human body. Um, you know, there was no kind of doubting their kind of incredible scientific achievements, but you would really see that um, often in other parts of their life or outside of their expertise. Um, they seem to be acting in a way that I can only describe as, you know, quite stupidly. Um, so this would include people like Kerry Mullis, who invented the polymerase chain reaction. Um, uh, you know, that's what's used in all kinds of genetic testing, also in the um, PCR test that we use for COVID. So, you know, really a fundamentally important process that he discovered, you know, almost it came just as this flash of inspiration. Um, but then, you know, reading his autobiography, he was also... Um, an AIDS denialist, a climate change denialist. He denied the mm. um, fact that CFCs were destroying the ozone layer when that was like a huge issue. Um, it seemed, you know, in almost every other area outside of his particular region of um, biochemistry, he was more wrong than right. And it was that kind of behaviour that really fascinated me. How could someone be so intelligent but so stupid? Um, mm. And so that's what the intelligence trap tries to answer. And it does so by kind of without dismissing the importance of IQ, but it's really asking, you know, what besides that kind of analytical intelligence, um, can some people be missing? Can some other people maybe, you know, have those skills that exceed what we would expect for their IQ? You know, what are all of those other abilities that really lead to wiser decision-making and judgment and behavior? I remember, John, when you got back from that vacation and you were really excited about having read that book and gifted me one while we were together in London. And I too consumed it quite quickly. And, and just, it was a page turner for me, um, just like your most recent book is. Um, but I want to hone in on what you're talking about here on intelligence, if we can a little bit more, because I think you say that more intelligent people are, are more intelligent people are often more susceptible to fake news and conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's right. So I would say, you know, kind of try to compare intelligence to like the engine of a car, you know, that kind of raw horsepower. And the fact is that actually if you have these other checks and balances, um, you know, that, that raw power can get you to places very quickly. But actually if you lack the ability to be able to appraise information rationally and logically, then it can actually lead you to veer off course more quickly and to, you know, drive off the proverbial cliff. Um, and that's exactly what we see when we look at people who are believing in these weird conspiracy theories like Kerry Mullis. Um, that is through a process called motivated reasoning, but it's where you have this very strong belief often tied to your identity that you don't really want to kind of get rid of, even if you find evidence that contradicts that belief. Um, so in, rather than like looking at the evidence and changing your opinions, all you do is kind of dismiss anything that disagrees with you and use your intellectual powers to rationalise your opinions despite the evidence against it. Um, so that's incredibly important. We see that, you know, in a range of different phenomena, including climate change denialism, um, also people's responses to things like uh, the legislation on gun control, um, you know, all kinds of uh, polarised issues that are likely to be very central to people's identities. So is it less about thinking and more about strong beliefs in Well, these I think it's a combination. It's like you have this strong emotional kind of attachment to a belief, but then you're using those um, thought processes to rationalize what you want to believe. Yeah, mm. exactly. So, you know, you might read a report um, that kind of lays out the evidence for climate change, but rather than updating your beliefs based on that new data you are looking for the tiny, you know, kind of loopholes that you think you've discovered that might render it kind of meaningless. Um, mm. And importantly, you wouldn't do the same if that report were supporting your beliefs. It's a very one-sided process of rationalization um, that you're using there. 
And you bring this to life wonderfully with the, the story of Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of the uber-rationalist Sherlock Holmes, and how ironically he became so susceptible to fakery of many different types. Um, can you just recount some of that? Yeah, I mean, he is like the best example, really. Um, because, you know, he shows so well with um, Sherlock Holmes that he totally understood the principles of kind of logical deduction and rational thinking. You know, I think Sherlock Holmes says all kinds of things like that you, you know, mustn't come to um, your, you mustn't kind of come to the data with preconceptions. You have to take the data as it is and then only form your theories after you've looked at the data. Um, but Arthur Conan Doyle really wasn't doing this when it came to beliefs about the paranormal. Um, so he believed in spiritual mediums. He um, was also fooled by the Cottingley Fairies scandal, where these schoolgirls had um, literally just cut out pictures of fairies from their books and then pinned them to um, kind of the trees in their garden and uh, published them as photographs saying that they were proof of um, fairies living in England. And Arthur Conan Doyle absolutely believed in this. Um, and in that particular case, you know, he was drawing on his scientific knowledge Um you know, all of that kind of his intelligence and education to actually justify these pictures. So he started building these theories that um, based on the new um, new theory of electromagnetism, he started to explain why we couldn't see these fairies in, you know, everyday life. He said because they were only visible at certain spectrum, uh, certain parts of the spectrum of light that weren't normally visible mm. to the naked eye. Of course, he didn't explain why these um, teenage girls were able to capture them on photographs um, when they were meant to be invisible. Um, you know, people pointed out quite rightly that you could see the pins actually sticking through the cardboard. Um, but Arthur Conan Doyle said, oh, you know, they actually always appear in the midriff and that must just be their like um, belly buttons, which just proves that they give birth like humans with an umbilical cord. Um, so he was, you know, very inventive using all of that creativity that he used within his fictional works. Um, just to support these beliefs that he had in paranormal activity. Um, and that, to me, is exactly what we're talking about when we have this uh, motivated reasoning. And the fact is that Arthur Conan Doyle's beliefs may not seem so, you know, damaging and dangerous, but actually I think it really is a big problem for our society if we have a huge issue like climate change and we can't really agree on um, the kind of plan to go forward because people are applying motivated reasoning, possibly on both sides, but in a way that means they can't ever reach a kind of agreement about the, the way to proceed. In your observation, is this problem worsening? Because it seems to me, and maybe it's just how much of it becomes publicized through social media and other factors that didn't exist previously, but I feel like on a more regular basis, I hear more extreme conspiracy theories being uttered and, and seemingly perhaps even more widely accepted by more groups of people. Are you seeing that? Mm, yeah, it's difficult to quantify. So my impression would be the same as yours. But um, I do, I think that fake news definitely has been around forever. You know, I think about mm. Jonathan Swift, the writer um, who complained about kind of um you know, political conspiracy theories kind of spreading through England and, and actually spreading faster than the truth could catch up with them. I think that was a sentiment that mm. was then echoed by Mark Twain later on as well. Um, so we know, you know, fake news has been around for a while. Um, I do think the internet has, you know, accelerated that process and has meant that, um, you know, whereas I guess in Swift's time, it must have been over the course of weeks or months, you know, now people are, these uh, rumours um, can be spread, you know, like, over the course of like an hour or two and even if you are very right. quick at um issuing like a, a kind of fact check already it could be too late so i think that is one way in which the situation has got a lot worse recently so before we get into what can we do about this to overcome this intelligence trap it might be worth just digging into a few of the other mechanisms at work, um, like um, overclaiming and earned dogmatism and so on, because you bring to life some fascinating mm -hmm. research around these. And I think, you know, to, to, to Scott's question, this show is aimed at leaders uh, who need to start recognizing more clearly where they might fall into these traps, because some of them are quite subtle, aren't they? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, motivated reasoning, I've spoken about kind of political issues, but actually that could very much be relevant. You know, if you're, you've got your big idea as a leader, um, and actually, you know, people are questioning right from the start, like whether it's going to succeed, but because you're so in love with this idea, you just are going to dismiss all of their arguments against it. And actually, I think our culture kind of encourages this kind of self-belief, um, but sometimes that could backfire. And you really need, do need to be aware of when, you know, you are needlessly and unfairly dismissing kind of evidence uh, contrary to your ideas. But like you said, there's lots of other kind of forms of the intelligence trap. So another one is earned dogmatism. And that could be when you've already had a few successes or you've progressed in your career you know, and you really feel like you've proven yourself. Um, and the problem there is that that can then lead you to become more closed-minded. So it means that you just stop listening to the other mm. voices around you, much like motivated reasoning, but for a different underlying cause. It's really that kind of sense of ego um, and the sense that you've kind of paid your dues and now other people need to respect you. Um, that can stop you from looking at new data, from updating your opinions, and, and ultimately then from it can lead you to irrational decisions. And I think, you know, one of the famous examples is, is with geopolitical forecasters where you know, you might have someone who predicted an election correctly, you know, once or twice in the past, but then they believe now that they, you know, their intuitions are always correct and they're not going to mm -hmm. see any of the evidence that contradicts that. Um, but absolutely the same thing would happen in business too. And finally, there's, you know, just um, cognitive miserliness that um, is essentially just when you, are, you know, you're smart, you've got a good education, but you're just not really applying your thinking at all. Um, you just rely too much on your gut instincts and you don't even try to kind of um, pick apart the kind of um, the, the different steps you might have uh, gone through to get to that decision. You just kind of go for the first thing that comes into your head. Um, and that, again, is very damaging. So, you know, there's all of these mechanisms slightly overlapping but distinct in their own ways that together can lead us to just fail to use our brains and our intelligence um, in the optimum way. So you talk about a type of uh, awareness that can help us avoid these traps. Uh, you call it cognitive inoculation. Tell us about that. How do you build uh, cognitive inoculation? I mean, so this has been tested in multiple uh, different scenarios. Um, so actually with doctors, for example, um, they try to inoculate themselves against cognitive biases that might be damaging their diagnostic decision-making um, by having what they call a, a kind of cognitive... Um, so actually it's a mixed metaphor here. Um, in medicine, they would call it having like a cognitive pre-mortem and then post-mortem. So pre-mortem, you're trying to imagine all the ways in advance that you might make a mistake with this diagnosis, like what kinds of errors uh, could lead you to misdiagnose someone. It could be that you um, fall for the anchoring bias, um, which it, you know, it could be that your previous case, um, you saw someone with a particular illness and that's made it more salient in your mind. So you then assume that the next person that comes in has with similar symptoms, has this similar cause for the disease. It could be, um, or it could be that you're suffering from search satisficing. And that is just where you find something that roughly fits the criteria mm. that you're looking for, but you don't actually bother to look if there's, you know, to go beyond that and to question whether there's something that might be an even better, more rational fit to it. You just go with the, the first option that, um, that kind of is good enough. And that's a big problem in medicine. So, you know, in the idea here is that by kind of preempting some of those problems, you can then consciously avoid them. And then afterwards, you can go for a cognitive postmortem. So if you have made a mistake, just kind of go through not just like the facts of the mistake itself, but also what uh, cognitive processes were leading you to make that mistake. Which of these biases had you fallen for? Um, but there's also then what's called cognitive inoculation, uh, which is a very similar idea that people are using in um, to combat misinformation and fake news. And that's actually just by um, trying to learn about the different 
methods that conspiracy theorists and um, purveyors of fake news might be using to make their stories seem more convincing. So we know that they use lots of different tricks, like um, it could be an, uh, just a kind of slick presentation can make something seem more believable. Um, having an image, even if it's not relevant to the uh, statement itself, not directly relevant, makes something feel more believable. So you might mm -hmm. have some fake news story that a celebrity has died, and you might show a picture of that celebrity from a stock library. Now, that picture in itself is offers no evidence that the person has died. Um, but the, its presence there makes it feel more believable, because it mm. makes it um, easier for your mind to process, to visualize, and then that makes it feel more more truthy, the scientists say. So the, the upshot here is that by learning about those techniques, people become a bit more canny, a bit more literate with the um, kind of uh, strategies that are used, and then they're less likely to fall for them in the future. So that's how it's like an inoculation, because you, you might be exposed to something that was a fake news story, you analyse it, you understand how that worked and how that might have fooled you, and then the next time you're less susceptible. Hmm. You've, you've written about how unconscious bias training, which is often using things like the implicit association test, may not be as straightforward. Um, and there's, there's research showing that, um, that some of it doesn't work. I think you take a more, like Edward Chang's research at Harvard, um, I think you take a more nuanced view about it. Could you talk to us a little bit about this? Mm, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like it's maybe being unfairly dismissed at the moment. Um, because I think what what was happening was that a lot of the the courses that had been designed were more just like meant to kind of raise a flag, you know, explain to people that this problem exists, but they weren't in themselves meant to be the full solution to the problem. I mean, it would be remarkable and unbelievable if a, you know, hour and a half course that you're given, you know, for a, a you know, an online training course, um, that that could then reduce your prejudice for the whole of your life without any kind of follow-ups, any reminders, any kind of further exercises, you know. So that's... Um, the, I think that's where the problem has really arisen, is that um, a, lot, you know, a lot of these courses were being kind of used for the wrong purposes and with unrealistically high expectations. And then you were measuring whether it had actually caused a change in behaviour, you know, a long time afterwards, six months afterwards, a year afterwards, and it hadn't. And then people just kind of instantly dismiss this whole idea. And almost, you know, I've seen kind of news articles acting as if, like, there's just no way to deal with prejudice, as if, like, we, we just... Are helpless to this. Um, I don't really think that is what the research is showing us. I think it's actually, you know, there are some techniques that do seem to be more effective at reducing people's implicit biases and, importantly, their kind of explicit behaviours too. Um, but, you know, they need to be practised regularly. You need to make sure that people are paying attention and taking it seriously. And you also obviously need to solve these structural problems at the same time. I think that's the big issue too, is that mm -hmm. just running one of these um, these courses aiming to educate people about implicit biases isn't, um, you can't use that as an excuse to then not actually make sure that there are other procedures mm -hmm. in place to also deal with the kind of systemic problems. Yeah, totally agree. Um, let's turn to this year where you published the book we mentioned earlier, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. Um, and as Daniel Pink commented, possibly extend your life. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us what the expectation effect is and what it's not? Yeah, so the expectation effect is uh, the phenomenon where our beliefs can shape important outcomes, um, creating these self-fulfilling prophecies through I would say three um, distinct but overlapping and interacting mechanisms. And they are um, changes to your uh, perception, changes to your behavior, and changes to your physiology. Um, now, you know, as you alluded, like this can 
change our health and well-being in all kinds of ways. So it can actually change things like um, how you experience exercise and even your physical performance, how you respond to a new diet, even your longevity. People with a, a positive view of ageing live seven and a half years longer than people who have a negative view of ageing. Um, mm. But I think what I always try to emphasise is that, you know, these are very specific results. It's we're talking about specific kind of mindsets or expectations having specific outcomes, but there are lots of areas where just cultivating good expectations, unrealistic expectations, are just not going to work at all. Um, so while it can increase your chances of living a longer life, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, simply having like this kind of positive view um, and optimism, well, that's not actually going to help shrink the tumour. Um because there's no actual known mechanism by how that would work even. Um, you know, often the expectation effects I'm talking about are kind of small incremental differences, kind of day after day, that will either predispose you to higher fitness and uh, greater health and well-being or to illness and, and ultimately death. But, you know, it's not going to kind of by itself just kind of solve a huge problem like a tumour growing in your body. So that's why I think we have to be very realistic about what the expectation effect can achieve and what it can't achieve. And I would say even if it can't perform miracles, that doesn't mean that it's still not this incredible thing that we could all use and that can improve our, our lives in countless ways. Yeah. So it's it's not positive thinking and or wishful thinking, cosmic ordering, any of that kind of stuff. It's it's, um, as you say, it's creating those different levels of change in your body over a long period of time, which creates a general conditions for, for good things to happen. Um, you, you talked about this, um, you know, because the, the research in the effect of the placebo is probably the most significant in, in this regard. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you uncovered in looking at that? Mm, yeah, I mean, so the placebo research has got the kind of head start, I guess, because um, it's only recently that then scientists have started to ask, well, if the placebo effect works, why isn't it having, you know, influencing other areas of our life? And, and of course it is. Um, but yeah, with the placebo effect, we, so we, you know, had long been kind of assumed that the placebo, when you receive a kind of sugar pill and you're told um, that it's a real drug, well, that's going to make you feel a bit better kind of subjectively often. It kind of reduces some of your fear of the illness um, that you're suffering. And that could, you know, lead people to report an improvement in their symptoms, even if nothing's happening physiologically. But we now know that often with the placebo effect, you know, physiological changes are taking place. So if someone is taking a placebo pill and they've been told it's a painkiller, um, and especially if they're told it's a painkiller, they've taken in the past, then the body actually starts to produce its own endogenous analgesics, so opioids or um, uh, cannabinoid drugs, for example, the brain can actually produce them. And, um, and you know, that then, you know, contributes to a greater pain relief. So it's not just subjective, it's kind of physiological change that's leading to the pain relief. Um, similarly, you can do things like reduce inflammation in your body, um, which can help you to feel um, a lot better. It can, you know, change your blood pressure. It can change the actions of your digestive system. You know, if you're suffering from something like irritable bowel syndrome, placebos can be very powerful at actually helping to reduce those symptoms. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, it's having these real effects. But again, you know, they're in very specific conditions. What I'm not saying is that if you have um, terminal cancer, you can replace your chemotherapy drugs with a placebo pill and that will be doing the same thing because you're, there's no way that the body can produce chemotherapy drugs mm -hmm. in the same way that we know it can produce these painkillers. So we have to be very careful about what we claim it can and can't do. But, you know, the, the effects, like I said, can still be quite remarkable and really important. So we know that um, for people with chronic pain, for example, um, rather than taking the addictive opioid drugs, that actually you can help to wean them off their traditional painkillers by giving them uh, placebos. And you can actually give them open label place uh, placebos. So you can honestly label the, you know, the jars of the pills as, you know, placebo pills, take two a day. And by explaining about the mind-body connection about how the brain can actually 
provide this own pain relief, you know, those patients actually still do show a noticeable improvement in their symptoms and that actually they can feel so empowered by that that even five years after the intervention, they're still reporting um, noticeable differences compared to people who had just continued taking their treatment as usual. It's so interesting. I, I, you know, I, I saw it as a subjective, you know, sort of experiential shift, but the physiological changes that you outline kind of blew my mind. And you talk about the opposite as well, right? So the nocebo, which, and you, and you lay out this example uh, of a man who lived in my, where I live in Nashville, Tennessee in the 1970s. And he was diagnosed with uh, terminal uh, esophageal, um, sorry, terminal uh, throat cancer, I believe. Um, and it came as a shock and, and all the things. And the doctor told him that, you know, he would uh, probably not live to see Christmas. And he did live, live to see Christmas, but shortly, shortly thereafter, he passed away. And on autopsy, he didn't have that cancer. That was, that just blew my mind. Tell, tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Um, but actually, you know, what we think is happening there is that, like, the fear of dying from the illness um, had actually, you know, produced a significant stress response. There was kind of chronic, you know, day mm. after day, he would have been worrying and expecting to die within the next few months. And we know that stress of that kind over a long period can, you know, lead to all kinds of things like raised inflammation, um, you know, extra putting extra strain on your heart as well. That then, you know, over the long term, that can cause damage and can actually make you you know, more likely to die. And actually, we do see that that's a very dramatic case, but we do see that with um, people who've already suffered from um, cardiovascular disease, um, if they've had a heart attack and survived it, um, then actually their beliefs afterwards about whether they think they're going to suffer from another event or not, um, and whether they, you know, believe that they can actually, you know, get back on track with their life, that those beliefs can actually predict how likely it is for them to have that second event. So um, mm. so it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and, you know, so I think what the important thing there actually is that, you know, these there are interventions that might be able to prevent that from occurring. Like it's very natural that people are going to experience high anxiety after they've suffered ill health. But by giving people, you know, um, interventions like uh cognitive behavioral therapy that can help to reduce the um, catastrophic thinking processes that can stop them ruminating constantly about those uh, that danger and that can instead try to help them maybe to think more proactively about what they can do to preserve their uh, the health of their heart then that should actually reduce that risk and you know we ha- do see that in various studies and one of my favorite mm-hmm. one uh, once looked at someone who had um, looked at a group of patients in Marburg, Germany, who had had um, heart surgery, gave them this kind of intervention. And then six months later, you know, they tracked their progress and how they had recovered from the operation and were getting on with their lives. And actually, the people who had um, optimized their expectations through this therapy, um, they actually tended to show better outcomes in you know, according to all kinds of measures from how quickly they left hospital to how quickly they returned to work. And then also Mm. physiological measures like the level of inflammation within their body. So, you know, just changing their mindsets through like psychological therapy had wonderful outcomes for them. And the the research um, by Alia Kram at Stanford, uh, the Mind and Body Lab, on fitness and eating is particularly exciting in terms of giving us some very practical potential solutions for rethinking our mindset around these things. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favourite chapters. Um, You know, I think we've all kind of experienced this if we've ever tried to kind of lose weight or control our weight. Um, But actually, as soon as you start trying to cut your calories, um, it's, it's just it's very hard for you to resist, you know, the temptation later on in the day for you to not be constantly focusing on like the food that you've missed and what you really want. And actually, you know, whether you give into the temptation or not, it's just can be a very unpleasant experience. Um, 
Now, what um, Ali Akram was really looking at was whether our kind of mindset is involved in that and whether you can actually shape people's mindsets to avoid that from occurring. And, you know, there's actually really good research showing that our expectations can shape um, things like hunger and appetite. You know, going back to the 70s and 80s with studies of amnesic patients, and what you find is that patients who um, had damage to the hippocampus and who can't form new memories, um, their hunger is incredibly stable, but often quite high. And so what happens is if you give them uh, their dinner and they eat it all and then you take the plate away and give them another meal, um, they'll just happily eat the second meal um, without... Well, you know, they'll eat it and they won't even report any change in their hunger or satisfaction. They'll still feel Mm. hungry even after two full plates of food. So that really tells us that actually the brain is, you know, playing a fundamental role in interpreting the signals coming from the gut and that it's all relying on, you know, our memories of what we've eaten and then our expectations of, you know, how we should be feeling having eaten that food. Um, now, Ali Akram showed that actually that's then having an effect on um, the hormonal response as well. And so what she did was she asked participants to come into the lab on two separate occasions. Um, Each time they had exactly the same milkshake. The only difference was how the milkshake was labelled. So, you know, on one day it was labelled as this kind of 750 calorie luxurious um, treat, you know, that was filled with like high quality ice cream and then, you know, more cream on top of that and then given all of these chocolate flavourings and it was something to really relish. Um, On the other day they were told there was a kind of sensible health shake. It was kind of, um, you know, they had a picture of vanilla, which looked, you know, not that appetising, not something to get excited about. On the packet, you know, it's 200 calories, which is barely anything. You know, it really set up this sense that actually they were depriving themselves of, of the snack they really wanted. And then, you know, while they ate the milkshakes, she took measures of ghrelin. Now, ghrelin is the hunger hormone. It stimulates appetite. And what normally happens is just before you have like a meal or a big snack, um, the ghrelin does spike. You know, your body's like telling you kind of eat this essentially. But then it like, um, it drops dramatically too, because once you've eaten, um, you don't need to be seeking food. So you don't need such high levels of ghrelin going around your blood. Now that's exactly what happened when the participants believed they were having this luxurious high calorie milkshake but um, the ghrelin barely changed at all when they were having this um, sensible health shake that they were told mm. didn't have many calories in. So it's just their expectations were shaping the levels of that hormone. And it's supported them by loads of other research showing, you know, changes in the brain processing that are associated with hunger. Also, you know, the movement through the gut, um, our expectations can shape, like literally how quickly a meal passes from your mouth you know, through your um, digestive system. And that, again, is going to change how full up you feel after the meal and whether you do want to kind of raid the biscuit tin afterwards. Um, and the upshot of this is really that, you know, rather than kind of just focusing on our calories when we're dieting and just thinking about, you know, depriving ourselves, we actually still need to focus on the pleasure that we're getting from those meals. We need to do whatever we can to make them feel as satisfying and celebratory as possible. So, you know, really focusing on the flavours and the textures and, you know, adding spice if you like spice and taking care of the appearance so that it really feels like a satisfying experience. So interesting. Here on The Evolving Leader, we are committed to stretching the leadership conversation in every episode, and we invite you to help spread the word. If you have learned or been inspired by something you heard on this podcast, chances are others would too. Please consider sharing your favorite episode with your network on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks for listening. So you list at the end of your chapters, which I really liked, um, some practical things that the reader can do to harness the expectation effect beneficially. And you've touched on some things here already, but can you give us a few more examples of things our listeners could start doing right now? Mm, Yeah, I mean, so... You know, I think like to take just a couple of examples um, with working out, you know, I think like if we all want to get fit, um, some of us might have negative 
kind of associations with exercise, you know, maybe going back to our gym classes. Um, and so we just assume that, you know, we're not cut out for exercise. But actually, you know, aside from people with uh, disabilities, actually, most people, you know, can really benefit from doing exercise. Um, and they will see kind of a positive trajectory if they just keep at it. Um, and so what the research tells us is that actually by changing our mindset, we can just make that process a lot easier. Um, one way you can do that is to avoid always comparing yourself with the people around you at the gym. You know, it's very easy if you're on a treadmill and the um, guy or woman next to you is um, like, you know, really pounding the treadmill, like really uh, performing you, is to, for you to feel like really physically un- unfit and inferior in comparison to them. Um, the research shows that that's actually then going to change how exerting you find that exercise. You're going to find it harder. And that's then going to mean that you find it more difficult to keep going in the future. Um, you know, instead, we should be focusing more just on our own trajectory and thinking, well, like, you know, how am I performing compared to yesterday or compared to a, a week ago or compared to a month ago? That's just going to help you to, is, it will basically take the brakes off your performance. So ironically, you're actually going to perform better and improve more quickly if you do that rather than always looking for kind of, you know, inspiration from others. Um, um, in terms of, uh, you know, that the kind of fatigue you're feeling while you're working out, it's easy for you to associate that fatigue with failure. You think like, um, like if I was fit, I wouldn't be feeling like this. I wouldn't be out of breath. Like, you know, I'm an embarrassment. You know, all of these horrible thoughts can be going through your head. Um, but actually, you know, you can reappraise that and you can re- recognize that those aches and pains are actually just proof that you're pushing your body to its current limit. And that is necessary for you to grow. And by focusing your thoughts on the growth, um, that's going to, you know, keep you motivated, but it also actually improves how you feel. And there's even some evidence that that kind of mindset can actually, again, help you to release those endogenous opioids or endorphins um, that can, you know, improve your performance because you're feeling less pain and also give you that kind of sense of euphoria once you've finished your workout. Um are you, so, are you listening, John? Because this is why he doesn't work out with me, because I'm always so ahead of him and he feels so much embarrassment. But see, see, you can it's not, it's focus not on the growth, John. No, it's not that. I just can't <laughs> listen to the moaning. It's just so... <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, like another good thing you can do is to work out with other people. Like The social element can be great for um, helping with the psychology of exercise. But yeah, those are the tips that, you know, I apply myself and like it really has helped me uh, to go from being quite a couch potato to really like loving exercise and you know the kind of going to the gym or doing like home like high intensity workouts being like the highlight of my day there there is a i mean you mentioned this at the beginning but there are some amazingly potent takeaways around the expectation effect and its influence on longevity um and, and it takes lots of different forms can you talk us a little bit through what you learned there yeah, I mean, this was the, I guess I started out being the most sceptical of this particular expectation effect, because it does sound unbelievable. Um, but then as I kind of looked into it, actually, it seems um, very well documented, the mechanisms. Um, like I said earlier, it's really, you know, I want to know that there's some like, well understood mechanisms rather than some kind of magical kind of miraculous um, process going on. Um, but essentially, you know, there's been longitudinal studies and multiple longitudinal studies showing, you know, you ask people in middle age or earlier, you know, what do you think is going to happen when you get older? Um, is it something to look forward to? Is it something to dread? Do you associate it with wisdom? Do you associate it with disability? And, you know, all of these studies had shown that um, the people who have the positive uh, mindsets are less susceptible to different illnesses like cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's disease. And they are more likely to live longer, you know, with one big study showing that um, people with the positive mindset live for about seven and a half years longer than people who have the much more pessimistic view of aging. Mm. Now, the mechanisms there, you know, again, it's kind of perception, behavior and physiology. So, you know, a big factor that we shouldn't neglect is the fact that if you're optimistic about the future, you're more likely to stay active and to exercise. And maybe because you have a better perception of your fitness, um, you know, you're actually performing better while you're doing that exercise for the reasons I just described, you know, your mindset while you exercise matters. And if you feel vulnerable, it's going to be harder as you get older. Um, But secondly, I think it's also, you know, 
there's su- such good evidence now that there's a direct kind of um, psychosomatic uh, cause of this decline as a result of the negative mindset. And that is because if you feel vulnerable, because you, you assume that you're becoming weaker, you're you know losing some of your cognitive potential, you're going to get um, confused and forgetful more easily, then all kinds of challenges in your life start to feel a lot more difficult and a lot more dangerous. You know, you might stop worrying that you'll get lost simply going to the post box, or you might fear meeting other people because you you think you won't be able to remember their names. Now, that then increases your stress response, like everything's feeling harder, so you have um, kind of prolonged high levels of the hormone cortisol. That can then do things like increase the inflammation within the body. And we actually, you know, this has all been documented. You see that for people with the um, negative views of ageing, that they do show these kind of this steady increase in cortisol, while the people with the positive view of ageing show a steady decrease in cortisol as they kind of relax into mm. old age. Um, and then what that does is that, you know, together the stress response and the inflammation that causes kind of wear and tear to your tissues. You know, that's well established from lots of other research. Um, and that then predisposes you to illness and ultimately to an earlier death. And we can even see these changes, you know, within the cells themselves. So we know that each each cell um, has a certain pattern of um, gene expression that changes as you get older. This is known as the epigenetic clock. And what happens is that... Um, um, you know, amongst the people with the negative view of ageing, that clock is ticking a little bit more quickly. You're seeing those changes occurring more rapidly um, compared to the people with the positive view of ageing. Um, so that, to me, all seems very convincing. And I love this research because it comes at the question from multiple angles, but they all point in the same direction. What else should we be asking you? Um, so I think that you know, we've spoken a bit here about a, a few different techniques we can use to kind of boost, uh, to uh, to kind of create positive expectation effects. But um, I do have a kind of troubleshooting section in my book that I think has some general guidelines that could be quite useful. Um, so essentially, you know, what I'm not asking people to do is to become these kinds of, you know, um, rose-tinted kind of Pollyanna figures who are just like relentlessly mm-hmm. optimistic. Like, actually, like I'm not asking that at all. And you know, we must never deny the discomfort that we're experiencing or the kind of fears that we have. Um, but what we do want to do is break out of the catastrophic thinking. So that's where you have that kind of chain of thoughts where you're assuming the worst, and then you'll you you then start to kind of think, well, if that happens, then like what other disaster is going to come in its wake? And then, you know, you kind of, that links to another problem. And, you know, you're just like, um, you're you're really imagining the worst case scenario kind of just getting even worse than, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, than you'd initially imagined and you're like amplifying all of your fears. Um, so, you know, we need to kind of break out of that. And actually, if you can just kind of try to question your basic assumptions about that, question that kind of initial thing that you're assuming and just be like, you know, is that... Is there good objective evidence behind that? Is there another way of looking at it? Are there multiple possibilities? And I'm ignoring all of the other possibilities. You know, that's a really important first step. And actually, that can apply in multiple situations. Um, and then secondly, I think you um, you just want to kind of try to talk to yourself as if you're your own best friend. And I think that can be really important if you're mm. struggling to um, to change your mindset, struggling to get out of this rut. But you apply this uh, practice called self-distancing. And what I mean by that is, you know, imagine you're advising a friend who's in exactly the same situation or imagine 10 years in advance, in, in the future. You know, if you're looking back on this situation, what do you think you would tell yourself then? Do you really think that you would be um, kind of giving you, yourself you know, the same self-criticism that you're saying to yourself now. You know, it's not, um, that's, you know, again, it's not going to make everything all right doing this, but it actually just can help you to break out of that negative cycle and to look at the situation a bit more objectively. 
And then I think you can apply the other techniques that I mentioned in my book, things like reframing, where you're maybe just questioning the meaning behind um, the things that you're fearing. So if you, you know, to give just one simple example, if you are nervous about giving a presentation um, at work and or doing public speaking in front of a new crowd or um, you you can either see those nerves as being like a sign of imminent failure and you can tell yourself that actually, you know, if you were any good at your job, you wouldn't be feeling nervous and this is just a sign of how inadequate you are. Or you can actually recognise that the, the feelings of anxiety that you're having, those butterflies in your stomach, that they're actually, you know, there for a purpose and that there's a positive meaning in what you're feeling in that, and that you, you feel anxious because this event really matters to you and you want to perform at your best and that actually some of those changes as uncomfortable as they are and you don't need to deny that they're uncomfortable and that they're unpleasant but that actually they can also help you to perform better so Mm -hmm. your heart's racing because it's pumping lots of blood to your brain and that's helping you to think more clearly and you know that cortisol you know if you have just a small spike in cortisol on this one occasion that's not going to be bad for your health. But what that is doing is making sure you're as alert as possible. So you're engaging with the audience. You're not kind of just being drowsy, but you're actually like trying to meet the challenge. And the research shows that when you do that, when you reframe the feelings without denying the feelings, that that can be very powerful, not just in terms of improving your performance, but then also helping you to recover more quickly after the event. Um, so that's what I think like we should all be doing is is just trying that kind of reframing, you know, not denying what's happening, but just trying to look at whether there's a different way of interpreting it. And that's incredibly helpful. Um, what are you working on now? What's your next uh, next project? Mm, so I am just beginning to work on a, a new book which looks at social connection and all of the ways that we can use science to kind of improve um, our connection with the people around us. And that could be, you know, our families, our colleagues, strangers, um, pretty much anyone that we meet. There's always this potential for you to make a connection. And too often we miss that opportunity. But actually, there are lots of ways that you can um, just subtly change your own behaviours to make sure that you're getting the most out of the other person and yourself and building the potential for a longer-lasting relationship, if that's appropriate. Well, we look forward to that because uh, you always yeah. open up something new uh, to, to these <laughs> Thank you. Well, David, thank you so much for your time and insights. Um, we barely scratched the surface, folks. So if you haven't uh, yet picked up The Intelligence Trap, do it today. If you haven't picked up The Expectation Effect, do it today. Uh, They're definitely worth your time. David, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can get you on uh, after your next book is published. And, and yeah, and please. Talk to us about that if you're, if you're up for it. Yeah, no, I would love that. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, until next time, folks, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?